for now at least, for this summer at least, we've come to the end of our Summer in the Psalms sermon series. If you're just joining us today, we began this series back on June 11th with Psalm 1. We've been walking through the book of Psalms one at a time, and today we come to Psalm 12. Next June, we will pick up with Psalm 13. And if you want to mark your calendars for the end of August 2037 or 2038 or so, we'll get to Psalm 150, I promise. Eventually, we'll get there. So today's a special day as we turn once more to the Psalms. But today, as I mentioned earlier, is also a special day for us as a church, a momentous day for us as a church as we say yes to the call of God on this church. Yes to the call of God on the sea rights, and yes to the call of God on many of you to plant our first daughter church in over 20 years, Trinity Burke. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And we're confident that God has called us to do this. We're confident that God has placed this call upon us and opened our ears and our hearts to receive it. We're confident that God has gone before us already, and we're confident in the the words of Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But even as we're confident and trusting in God's call, it's quite normal and natural and good for us to feel a mixture of emotions. This is what walking in faith feels like. This is what trusting in God feels like. There's excitement and happiness on the one hand and there is some trepidation and tears on the other hand. And with that in mind, and with this date in mind, knowing that August 27th was coming, the day of sending, day of commissioning, I asked myself the question many months ago, is Psalm 12 the right text for this day? (laughs) You were listening. (laughs) Is Psalm 12 the right text to focus on in a sermon on a day when we're launching a new church? Or would another text from Scripture be more appropriate? And as I wrestled with this, and I read through Psalm 12... I realized it's perfect for us. It's perfect for this day before we send off many of our own on mission. And I bet you can see why. If you have your Bibles open to Psalm 12, you'll see why right in the title at the top. Quote, the faithful have vanished. (laughs) There it is. Some sermons just preach themselves, don't they? faithful have vanished. But actually, seriously, in God's providence, Psalm 12 really is the perfect text for us to focus on on this momentous day, because it's good for us to ask ourselves as the church, what is it that we have to offer to the world? What do you have to offer in your workplace What do you have to offer in your school? What does Truro have to offer here on Main Street and Fairfax? 
What will Trinity Church have to offer in Burke? Psalm 12 answers that question. In the midst of a wicked world, in the context of what is an absolute absence of truth, in the middle of evil all around us, what do we have to offer as the people of God? What do we have to offer as the church of God? What we have to offer is what we have received. We proclaim what we have received. And Psalm 12 makes that clear. So turn there with me, please, if you haven't already. Look with me at Psalm 12. Because first we'll notice how the scene is set in verses 1 through 4 and in verse 8. The scene is set of incredible wickedness all around. And David laments this. He laments what I'll call the perverse and pervasive evil that runs rampant in the world around him, which is the same perverse and pervasive evil that runs rampant in the world around us. We have to start here today, not only because Psalm 12 starts here, but because we have to honestly assess the condition of the world in which we are the church. We have to honestly assess the conditions of the world in which we're about to plant a church. Verse one, save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. So the godly one here represents a person following the way of God, and the faithful here represents a people, corporate, following the ways of God. And David says these kinds of people have vanished. There's no one to be found. Now, this is not a literal statement. David is not saying that there are literally zero people in his nation who are following God. What this is, is a lament. This is a heart cry of heartbreak. As David surveys the general landscape around him, he's absolutely overwhelmed. He says the, the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished. He's overwhelmed by the evil around him. Do you ever feel like this? When you look at the world around you, when you watch the news, that's how the psalmist felt, overwhelmed by evil. He goes on in verses two through four, and what he does here is he describes a world that has lost its bearings of truth. Look with me at verses two through four. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. So now he asks God to do something about it. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? So the way that David illustrates what's wrong in the world, the way he illustrates what has gone wrong in the world is to focus on one of the most fundamental, basic building blocks of human life, of human civilization, which is the tongue, our lips. 
given to us by God to communicate truth, which are now tortured and twisted to communicate nothing but lies. And he's overwhelmed by this again, that the world around him has lost its bearings of truth. So he uses that word everyone again, everyone, lies. They just say what they think people want to hear. That's what flattering speech means. Flattering speech is not, well, you look nice. Flattering speech is just saying what people want to hear. David says everyone is a hypocrite. That's what having a double heart means in verse 2. They say one thing, they live another way. Everyone boasts with their tongue. And what happens then is this people, they put their trust in no other authority than their own lips. Everyone has gotten to a place of arrogance and self-centeredness so that they believe there is no other master over them. So if you've been tracking with us in this series in the Psalms so far, you've seen this in a few other Psalms, that this is a, a sort of indictment against the evil of the world around David. This is also an indictment against the evil in the world around us. The perverse and pervasive evil that was present in David's time is the same perverse and pervasive evil present in our time. A people who wander from God, a people who reject God, will inevitably wander from truth and will inevitably embrace and spread and believe absolute nonsense. That's the message of verses one through four as David sets the scene. And then looking at the last verse again, verse eight, sums up the situation in this way. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is not written with an angry pointed finger. This is not written with a shred of uptight, self-righteous arrogance on David's part. This is written through tears. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. When God is rejected, vileness is exalted. This was true in David's day, and this is true now in our day. So for the people of God, there are a few ways we might be tempted to choose to respond. And the first way is understandable, and it's to exclusively fight. We take it upon ourselves to fight the lies and fight the evil and fight the hypocrisy, and we embrace the fight. A second understandable way is flight. We hide. We, we fear the culture. We build a bomb-proof bunker from the culture. We wrap ourselves and our kids in bubble wrap. And we embrace the flight. But the third way, the Psalm 12 way, the better way, the way of David, is neither exclusive fight nor exclusive flight, but is a flight to God who fights. It's subtle, but it's here in our text 
this morning. He flees to God who fights. Verse one, save, O Lord. What's that? That's flight. Verse four, may the Lord. That's fight. And this then is the confident posture of the man and the woman of God, and it's the confident posture of the church of God. You're free from having to fight the culture. You're free also from having to run from the culture. You're free to look to your God and flee to your God with confidence saying, save, O Lord, may the Lord. We turn now in this psalm to confidence, but it's not because David's circumstances change. It's not because there's some kind of election that takes place in his nation. The confidence comes from the Lord. David knows that God sees the lostness. God understands the lostness better than he can understand it. God sees the wickedness, and God laments the wickedness much more than David could ever lament it. And God hears the cry of his people. We see that here. God hears the cry, and God gives refuge to his people. And this is our hope in the midst of wickedness. And because this is our hope, this is our message for you and your life and your workplace and your school, for Truro Church and for Trinity Burke. We proclaim what we have received. Psalm 12 helps us see this clearly as we move on now. First, we have been given, and therefore we proclaim refuge in Christ. Verse five, this is the Lord speaking now. That's why there are quotation marks around it in our Bibles. This is the Lord. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. See the initiative of the Lord here to save. See the sovereign action of the Lord to save his people. The Lord says it in verse five, I will now arise. Literally, in the original language, I will now shine forth. There's a shining indicated in in God's decree here. I will shine forth now. So here's a Sunday school question for you. And hopefully you'll know the right answer to 99% of Sunday school questions. In what manner, in what way, in what form, in what person, in what baby, in a manger in Bethlehem, does God decide to shine forth? What's the answer? Jesus. That's the answer. A little sneak peek to next Sunday when we launch into the book of John from the prologue, verses one and four. In him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the what? Light of man. The light shines in the darkness. Here's good news for us. And the darkness has not overcome it. God arises. 
God shines his light. God saves us from wickedness, all right? And he saves us from wickedness and from evil, first and foremost in Christ. This we receive, so this we proclaim. I can't say it any better to you than how Paul said it to the Corinthians. First letter, chapter two, verse two. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing except what? Jesus. So David here in Psalm 12, many centuries before Christ, is pointing ahead to the eventual shining forth of the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. So if anyone ever asks you, what is it that Tro has to offer? Or if anyone ever asks that church plant in Burke, what does Trinity Burke have to offer? I hope that before any program, any ministry, any event comes to our mind, the first thing that always comes to our mind, what does this church or that church have to offer? Jesus. What we have to offer is Jesus himself, refuge in Christ. Second, God gives us, and therefore we proclaim, refuge in his word. Verse six, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Just earlier in this psalm, we were hearing how the words of the godless are meaningless. The words of the godless are just flattering. They tickle the ear. The words of the godless exalt arrogance, exalt vileness. So here's the contrast. But the words of the Lord, according to verse 6, are the total opposite. They are pure words. They are tested words. God's word, the Bible, can be trusted because it has been tested. That's what we see here. It's been tested. And it's been found to be trustworthy. The writers of scripture, the historicity of scripture, the ancient manuscripts of scripture, the promises and prophecies contained within scripture, the commandments of scripture, the ethics of scripture. God's word, God's holy scripture is deserving, is worthy of our absolute confidence. And because of that, what it means is we can find refuge in the word of God. The Bible you have in front of you or the Bible on your phone is the living word of God and it is refuge for you all day, every day, no matter where you go. You are bombarded by lies, lies, lies. And the only refuge, the only refuge of truth for us is God's word. I've got to quote a hymn here or I'm going to explode. <laughs> How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith. Where? In his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus hath fled? 
God gives us refuge in his word, and so this we proclaim. Boldly, unapologetically, we proclaim God's word. I love the closing verses of 2 Timothy 3. They end with this reminder about scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then you flip the page in that book, 2 Timothy. You get to chapter four, the very next verse, and it's a charge to Timothy. It's a charge for all of us who carry the word of God, no matter where we are. A charge for all preachers, charge for all church planters. And here it is. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, here's the charge, preach the word, period. Why? Psalm 12.6 tells us why. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. God gives us refuge in his word, so this we proclaim. We preach the word. Third, lastly, God gives us, and therefore we proclaim, refuge in the church. Verse seven, you, O Lord, will keep them, that is the poor, the plundered, the needy. You will guard us from this generation forever. So the church, at its best, at its most beautiful, at its most faithful, is the practical, hands-on, in the neighborhood, in the living room way that God fulfills this promise of keeping his people, guarding his people from evil. We see this in verse seven, that there is a generational spirit of evil that exists in the world. And what I mean by that is nothing spooky, but it's clear here that David is talking about a generation of evil that isn't tied to a particular set of years and that goes on forever. This evil generation exists forever in the world until evil is destroyed at the end. And so what God has done in his wisdom is designate his church to also go on forever as refuge for his people until evil is destroyed at the end. So David is confident here. Again, notice his confidence is not because his circumstances have changed. His confidence is in the Lord. You, O Lord, will keep us. You will guard us. In Christ, yes, in the word, yes, but also in the church. But, and what I'm going to say next is very important for all of us to hear. And this should make every pastor, every vestry, every bishop, every denomination, every church planter tremble. The church of God is only refuge for the world and the church of God is only refuge from the world when it proclaims and offers the same refuge it has received from God. 
Let me be blunt. The moment the church moves on from Christ, it ceases to be the church. The moment the church moves on from the word, it ceases to be the church. The church of Christ is only the church of Christ when it proclaims Christ. And the church of Christ can only proclaim Christ when it proclaims the word of Christ. There is no church apart from Christ. And there is no church apart from the word. The moment that we reject the gospel that we have received, we are no longer a church that offers refuge from the world or for the world. When we reject the gospel that we have received, we become just another group that exalts vileness and just another people with flattering lips. And if that happens to us, may God cut our lips off. There is only one place of refuge from a wicked world and for a wicked world, and that one place is Jesus. There is only one place of refuge from the lies of the world, and that one place is the word. And in God's design, God designed it this way, there is only one place that can proclaim this kind of refuge to the world, and that one place is the church the faithful church. May we be that kind of church and may we plant that kind of church. For about as long as I've known Mike and Jenny, I've known they're called to plant a church. You guys know it too. And I've known how much they love Burke. I like Burke just fine. <laughs> the roads make no sense to me. Burke this, Burke Lake that, Lake Burke this, Lake. Mike and Ginny love Burke and they're called to pastor there. I know it. And for a long time, they've waited. They've waited for God to release them. They've waited for the waters here at Truro to settle. And they've waited for the right time. Now it's time. And I know it's terrifying in many ways. And sad and hard. It's hard to release them. It's hard to send many of you off with them. And part of me, if I'm being brutally honest with you right now, I still don't want to do this. <laughs> Is it too late? Vestry's here. Can we resend our announcement? But the only reason not to say yes at this point to God would be out of fear for my own comfort, out of fear for our own church budget's comfort, or with our own comfort of just being comfortable. Listen, we are called to a higher calling than that. There is a world that is dying there are people who are deceived. There are men and women and boys and girls and married people and single people and professionals and students who are trapped in the wicked lies of a godless world. 
and they're listening to flattering lips and they're exalting vileness and they need Jesus and they need to hear the word of God. And if what it's going to take to give those people refuge is to plant a church in Burke, then praise God, let's do it. Amen? Amen. 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 There is one gospel. There is one Bible. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. This was the sure and certain confidence of David in Psalm 12. This is the sure and certain confidence for you and me. This is the sure and certain confidence for Truro Church in Fairfax. And starting next week, this is the sure and certain confidence of Trinity Burke. We proclaim what we have received. Church, we proclaim refuge in Christ. We proclaim refuge in the word. Nothing more and nothing less. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we lift our lament to you of the evil of this world and of the sin of our own heart, our own proclivity to wander. Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God we love. Lord, here's our heart again. Here's Truro again. And now we give to you Trinity Burke. Take, Lord, and seal it. Seal it for your courts above for the glory of your name, for the proclamation of the gospel, for refuge for your sons and daughters. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.